Genesis chapter 8. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock there that were with him in the ark. And God made the wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated, and in the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the tenth month, and in the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains appeared. At the end of forty days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made, and he sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him in the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand, and he took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth a dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him. In the six hundredth and first year, in the first month, on the first day of the month, the waters were dried from the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the twenty-seventh day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered a burnt offering on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seen time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. That is the word of the Lord. It's a fascinating part of this description because in these verses we have the account of the waters of the flood receding. And verse 1 of chapter 8 is kind of like a hinge for chapter 7 and 8 where we read, but God remembered. And I suspect if Noah on the ark for such a great length of time had wondered if God had forgotten him. After all, it had been 150 days that since God had shut them into the ark, 150 terrifying days. I can't imagine what it must have been like when all of a sudden that door was closed by God, the earth began to heave, and the heavens were opened. I can't imagine hearing the voices of people beginning to gather outside of the ark and calling out to Noah to open the ark as they realized that the judgment of God was a very real thing. 
I can't imagine the thunder and the lightning that was unleashed on the earth at that time. I can't imagine the howling of the wind. I can't imagine feeling what it must have felt like to have been in that ark where the water first began to get a hold of it and shake it off of its moorings on the earth and lift it up on its waters. I can't imagine what it would have been like to have been part of the world as the subterranean vaults were blown apart and as the windows of heaven were thrown open. Terrifying. And it struck me that God had only told Noah that he would be, um, that there was going to be a flood on the whole earth for 40 days and 40 nights. God hadn't given him any further details, at least that we find in text. God hadn't given him a roadmap. God hadn't given him a time frame. God had only made a promise to him that everything that is on the earth shall die, but he would establish his covenant with Noah. So I imagined in my head that there was a notch pole maybe on the ark, and uh, day one, Noah went and took out his little knife or his hatchet, and he carved a notch for day one. Uh, maybe he went for day two and another notch, day three and another notch, day four and another notch. And I wonder if he got to day 38 and thought, wow, this is, we're getting close now. This is almost over. A couple more days left. And when they got to day 40, maybe they had a, a sort of a 40-day party on the ark, thinking that, well, now the judgment of God was over and the flood would stop and everything would go back to normal. I suspect they did, at least for a moment, think that the worst was over. It's unlikely that they had any idea that for another 110 days, this ark would be floating on the waters. And it would only be after 110 days that the ark would become stable because it landed on the mountains of Ararat. I thought, isn't that sometimes like our own lives and our own worlds? Those of us who have walked with God for any length of time know such seasons of waiting, of trusting, of clinging to promises of God during the midst of a trial while seeing no end of it. We walk into a trial thinking, well, this will be a short one. I think we can figure this one out. Uh, you, know, uh, uh, you know, God will bring a resolution in a certain period of time, but we have no conception in our heads at all that this trial might last six months or it might last a year, or it might last a year and a half. Loved ones, I think sometimes the clearest evidence that God has not deserted you is that, not, that you are not successfully through your trial, but you are still standing in your trial. And here we have Noah on the ark, 150 days in, still standing. Somewhere I read a number of years ago, it's easier to obey God than it is to trust God. After all, obeying God, there are clear lines, there are clear commands, there are clear uh, statements that God gives to us. Do this, don't do that. Talk like this, don't talk like that. Um, he gives us 10 commands, and so we know the boundaries of obedience. What we don't know is the boundaries of trust. Our circumstances can be massive. They can change. And God just says to us, trust me. Commit your way to me and trust me. So at the end of Genesis 24, 7, 24, we realize that the 
earth was covered with water for 150 days, and then as we get into chapter 8, that the ark has come to rest. I hope you will understand, and I, I won't be able to take as much time as I want to establish this, but that what is God doing, or what God is doing here in chapter 8 is what God did in chapter 1 of Genesis. He is recreating the earth. And in Genesis chapter 1, uh, in verse 9, you read, God says, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called the seas. And what was originally part of the work of God on the creation on the third day now takes place over many days. But it is the same God that begins to separate, once again, the waters. Originally, the waters had covered the earth. They were over the face of the earth, and the Spirit of God hovered over them. Now the same thing was in existence, and God was now to make those waters abate. And Moses right then, God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him on the ark. Now, you know, God doesn't forget anything, does he? This is not saying that God sort of had a memory lapse here. It's not kind of implying that God was up in heaven engaged with the angels somehow, and all of a sudden he just, oh, the ark and Noah. This is simply a way of saying that God remembered in a way that he acted towards them. After all, it was God who warned of the flood. It was God who brought the flood. It was God that uh, unleashed the flood. It was God who stopped the flood. It was God that would abate the flood. So it wasn't like God had forgotten. This is a way of saying God remembered to act for Noah's good. We find this in Isaiah where it says, for a brief moment, God says, for a brief moment, I deserted you. But with great compassion, I will gather you. In overflowing anger, for a moment, I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah would no more go over the earth. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you. I will not rebuke you, for the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love will continue and not depart from you. And my covenant of peace Peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. And so after all, it had been 150 days since God had shut them in the ark, and God's flood abatement was beginning to be noticed. Notice two things that it says about God. It says, first of all, he made a wind to blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. I already pointed out in verse 2 of chapter 1, it says, the earth was without form and void, and Darkness is over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The word for spirit and wind is the exact same word. Could this be an intimation that once again now the Spirit is at work through the physical means of wind to begin the process of abatement? And secondly, it said that God stopped up the water sources. Just as he had opened them up, it says that the fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven were closed. And I wonder if part of this process of the wind blowing over the earth was the beginning of the hydrological cycle that we now experience and take for granted here on earth. Maybe it existed before the flood, but it was certainly used to abate the waters in a significant way as water was taken up from the surface of the earth up into the atmosphere through evaporation, first through condensation, and as the water uh, turned into this vapor state and collected in the heavens, then it fell in the form of precipitation. And some of that precipitation would have fallen as snow. I think probably for the first time, the earth experienced snow. 
And so through this hydrological cycle, this precipitation began to fall. The, the waters were lifted up and they were dispersed on the earth in different means. And as the, 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 the evaporation from the warmed ocean and the, 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 the cooler continent because of, I think, the volcanic ash and dust that was in the air that blocked the sun, all of a sudden then what you have is this increased snowfall across the earth. And it's easy to imagine that part of the embatement included snow falling and creating ice, which then created glaciers, which covered a large portion of the earth for some period of time. The earth was significantly different after the flood. Do you, do, I hope we understand that. It would seem like before the flood, the mountains weren't as high and the valleys weren't as deep. Consider the massive forces that God unleashed when he opened up the subterranean vaults of water. And there are still in existence today. Somebody showed me on their uh, cell phone, they work in hydrological geology, and they showed me just the, the water in our area that is under the ground. It is astounding. And so consider the massive forces that, that God caused to unleash the subterranean waters that he had put boundaries on, and they just blew up from the bottom up. And how God had burst down as he opened the heavens, rains from above. And through this event, God would have reshaped the whole of the earth. Could it be that as the water was dispersed with the creations of new mountain ranges, that deep valleys and gorges were created? I don't think that the earth that God originally created had 18,000 foot mountains. But I think that as a result of the upheaval and the, the upturning of the whole earth, that God created new mountain ranges that burst up from the earth. And God created deep, deep ocean trenches that we have even today, 12,000 feet down, to contain now the water that was beginning to be dispersed from the earth as gravity would take the water and push it down and down and down. Psalm 104 gives us a glimpse of this, I think, where there the psalmist says, you covered the earth with deep as with a garment and the waters stood above the mountains. This was the pre-flood earth. And then as the waters began to abate, the psalmist says, the mountains rose and the valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass so they might not cover again the earth. This is a whole new world that God created as the waters abated. And I hope you think this through, loved ones, that the world that Noah left behind when he entered the ark was vastly different from the world Noah entered when he exited the ark. Work that through in your minds a little bit if you can. Now there were high, high mountains with snow beginning to appear on them. There were deep, deep valleys. The climate would have been different. The geology would have been different. The landscapes would have been different. It's a totally different world that now existed. And think this through for a moment. Can we imagine what the new heavens and the new earth will be like? Do you have any sense in your head what that will look like? where God says at the end of this age, he will destroy the universe with fire and he will create a new heaven and a new earth. Do you think it will be like this one? I don't think it will. There might be some continuity, but there will be incredible discontinuity 
as God recreates for all of eternity a new heaven and a new earth. And the Bible says, no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Not only our own existence, not only our own relationship with God, but also the world that we will inhabit when God creates the new heavens and the new earth. Back in Genesis 8 again, the time it takes for the waters to abate. In 8.4, it says, in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. At last, after 150 days of water prevailing, the ark comes to rest on land. And then we can tell that the process of abatement continued for another 74 days until the first day of the 10th month. At that point, the mountaintops were now beginning to become visible. And at long last, after another 40 days, 264 days in total so far, since the flood began, Moses, or Noah released a raven. And it says of the raven, it went to and fro until the waters were dried up on the earth. In other words, he sent out a raven, and for the rest of the time that they were in the ark, that raven found food to eat, and it found places to land. But why a raven? Why didn't it return? Well, ravens are scavengers. Ravens eat decaying and rotting flesh. And it could stay on the mountaintops and rest. It could float on a corpse. It could float on a tree that had been uprooted. They were unclean animals. When you read in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, they were unclean because of what they ate. And the fact that it survived during this whole period of this abatement is evidence of death. This was Noah's way of knowing that death reigned. And it also let him know whether or not it was safe to leave the ark or not. After a period of time, then it says seven days, over 21 days, uh, he released a dove. And so in seven days, he sends out a dove. And you say, well, why a dove? Well, doves eat vegetation. Doves build nests, and they, 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 they rest in those nests in contrast with a raven. And such an experiment by Noah as he sent out a dove would be to tell whether the land or the ground was drying up. The raven didn't need dry land. A dove would need dry land. And so he sent it out first and it came back and he received it into his land and he said he knew that the water had not abated. Then he, seven days later, he sent it out again and this time it came back with a what? A fresh plucked olive leaf. Not a dead one, not a floating one, but a fresh plucked olive leaf. And that's the, God's way of telling us that vegetation was now beginning to sprout on the earth again. That there was plants now beginning to grow on the earth again. And then in seven days, he sent it out again, and it says that it did not return. Again, it's difficult to imagine than what's described in verses 13 and 14. Again, notice, though, the precision of the date, emphasizing the historicity of the flood in humankind. This was a specific time and place and date in the history of humankind. It says that uh, it was a real day in the 601st year of Noah's life. In the first month, on the first day of the month, the waters were dried off from the earth. 314 days after God had shut them into the ark, Noah removed the covering and looked out, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. 
And then again, in 56 days more, on the second month, on the 27th of the day, the earth was dried out. This is a total of 370 days. That is a long time to be on an ark, no matter how big it is. Loved ones, do you think that Noah had any idea what he was stepping into when God opened the door of the ark? God had told him 40 days and 40 nights, yet he and his family and the animals were preserved on the ark for another 330 days. I can't imagine what that year must have been like. I can't imagine the emotions that they experienced while they were on the ark and the emotions they experienced as God finally said to them, it's time to go. I don't think there's any sweeter words that they would have heard in that year than God saying to them, Noah, it's time to get off the ark. Take your wife and your sons and their wives and bring out every living thing that is with you of all flesh that they might swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. And so Noah went out. Just as God had shut them in, now God had let them out. And just as God had originally instructed creation in Genesis chapter 1 to be fruitful and multiply, now as God is recreating the world, he again commands them be fruitful and multiply. Just as Noah had been patient for 370 days, he now obeyed God and he left the ark. And as the Bible says, the heavens and earth existed long ago. The earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by the means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. The original creation, the original world was created out of water by the word of God. But then notice what Peter says in verse 7 of 2 Peter chapter 3. But the same, by the same word, the same word of creation, by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist. This is a different world. This is a recreated world. This is a reconstituted world. So the heavens and the earth that now exist post-flood post flood, are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. I can't imagine for a moment what it must have been like to be the only eight people on the earth. This earth that you and I habit today had eight people on it originally. Noah's response to God's preparation is pretty simple. The first thing that he does that's recorded, at least for us, is it said, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Just a couple things of note. This is the first altar for sacrifice that's mentioned in the Bible. Secondly, Notice the generosity of Noah's offering. It says there, of, he took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings, plural, on the altar. There's no holding back here by Noah. He's not kind of putting a little bit in his back pocket or putting a little bit uh, somewhere and hiding somewhere, wondering if there's going to be a next sacrifice Noah took some of everything available for sacrifice and offered it as a burnt offering. This was likely the largest sacrifice 
that this world had ever known in proportion to the availability of animals. This was a huge offering that Noah offered before the Lord that day. Thirdly, it's a burnt offering. A burnt offering is an all-in offering. A burnt offering is, here it is, God, all of it, everything is all yours. It's a total offering. It's symbolic of total devotion. There is nothing kept back from oneself. There is nothing given to priests. There is nothing that is preserved for later. It is all consumed on the altar. Every single bit of it went to the Lord. In part, this was, I think, Noah's way of acknowledging that everything that he had, everything that he experienced, his total and complete preservation was because of the hand of God. And it was his way of worshiping God. It was his way of saying thanks to God. It was a way of, of honoring God and noting God's place of priority. But the burnt offering is not only an offering of complete devotion and sacrifice, it's an offering of repentance. And so as Noah was offering this sacrifices or these sacrifices before the Lord. He was repenting of his sin. The ark was not a perfect place. And Noah was not a perfect man. And I think the moment he stepped off the ark, he was made aware of the extent of sin in the world. I think it's very unlikely that Noah stepped into a world depicted by many of the artists today of this particular day. Sun shining, big trees growing everywhere, fields of grass, um, this pristine Eden-like garden, animals smiling. Uh, do animals smile? I don't know, maybe they do. Um, Rather, it was more like the world that is pictured a year after a tsunami hits Thailand. Devastation is still evident everywhere. Or after New Orleans is smashed by a hurricane a year later and houses are still rotting. Vegetation is just beginning to grow. Or after great volcanoes that we saw in Mount St. Helens where it's taken years and years for it to recover and look like it now does. When Noah stepped off the ark, he would have seen some greenery, he would have seen some freshness, but he also would have seen massive devastation. Rubble, destruction. Noah would have known exactly why God had sent the flood. Because God had told him he would send it because of the wickedness of mankind on the earth. For 370 days, Noah and his family had been on the ark, and I, I can almost assure you that some of their conversations on some of the days went to the judgment of God, went to the wickedness of mankind. I think while they were on the ark, they had discussions about sin. They were made completely aware of the sinfulness of one another. Maybe as they lost their cool, maybe as they got angry with one another. The ark was not a sin-free environment. It's not like God took 
Noah and his family and stuck them in the ark and did this work of transformation in them and they were perfect individuals. No, they were sinners while they were on the ark. And Noah was a sinner when he got off the ark and we will see in a couple of weeks the devastating result of Noah's sin. And God himself would say of the people that they are still sinful at their very nature. And so Noah would have offered this burnt offering, not for the fun of it, but because he realized his own sinfulness. And he realized God's holiness. And he realized the need of God to forgive him of his sin. As Noah offered that, he offered it in repentance. He offered it in realization that he needed a substitute. And then God's response to Noah's offering. It's fascinating, just for so many reasons, this, these last verses. So when God smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, we've been talking a lot over the years about self-talk. Here's God's self-talk in, in, in a sense. This is the way that, this is, God didn't speak this out loud. This is God's response now to Noah's sacrifice. And as he looks out on the earth now, God's response, I will never again curse the ground because of man. Listen to this. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his infancy. See, the flood didn't destroy our sin nature. The flood didn't make humankind perfect. And God acknowledged that here. And, but what God is now saying is that I'm going to deal with humankind differently. And we need to hear this. Before the flood, God dealt with humankind through judgment. But now we see that God is going to deal with humankind through generosity and grace and mercy and kindness. It's, a, it's an amazing shift in God's view of humanity. And he says, I will never again curse the ground. It, it, this is, I believe, God's way of saying, I will never again destroy all of humankind, particularly through a flood. And again, it's not because man's kind, mankind's heart has changed, but because God is now choosing to look at mankind through Jesus Christ. In Genesis 6-5, man's wickedness was the reason God blotted him out. Now here in Genesis 8-21, man's wickedness is the reason God does not wipe him out. Amazing shift in God as he views humankind. And in these two responses to humanity, we realize that God is both just and justifier. God was completely just and destroying the world because of its wickedness. But God is also completely within his right to be the justifier because of the coming sacrifice of Christ in which he will punish the sins of mankind. It's an amazing pivot point in the Bible here. And you think this through. 
I think this is the only way we can understand the explanation of why God destroyed the earth that he had made after only 1,656 days with the flood. And then, well, why has God allowed our present earth to go on for 4,500 years? Do you ever think that through? Do you, ever, do you ever work that through in your head? I hope you don't conclude that it's because we're pretty good people. I hope you don't conclude that you're a pretty good person. I hope that the conclusion that we reach is not that I am any better than the pre-Diluvian people that lived on this flood, but rather God has changed the way that he is determined to look at humankind. And what God has determined is that he will be patient and he will be merciful and he will be kind. And what does Romans say? It's your kindness that leads us to repentance. If you're here today and you still have breath in your lungs and you have walked away from God and you shake your fist at God, know that God is determined to treat you differently than he did the people that lived before the flood. God is saying, I will be patient with you. God is saying, I am kind and merciful to you. God is saying, I, I want you to look at me and to realize that I am a God of mercy and grace and that it's my kindness that is giving you the opportunity to repent. So God smells the burnt offering and is pleased. We live in a time of grace, loved ones, a time of opportunity, a time of gospel proclamation. But for how long? The Bible is very clear that the day of the Lord will come. The Bible is very clear that God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world. But until that day, the earth remains. That's a, a, a phrase that you ought to think through and stick in your head for so many reasons. I, I find enormous comfort here. And I find a significant response to the panic and fear that's in our world with that few words, while the earth remains. For God makes a promise. He says, from this time on the earth, the, the earth will be blessed with a regularity, with a predictableness, with environmental patterns that are established and maintained by the hand of God. In other words, until the end of this age, until the day fixed by God when he will come to judge this earth, when God will destroy the planet at that time, he says, until that day, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will not cease. Do you understand what God is committing to there, loved ones? This is God's covenant of day and night. This is no less than God's persistent allegiance to this world in which we live and all the inhabitants of the world that God will continue to maintain this world in its structures. We do not owe the state of the world to Mother Earth. We owe the present state of the world and its continuance to our Father in heaven. When the seasons come and go, what should you say? Thank you, Father. When planting and harvesting happens and you go to the grocery store and there's produce there, or you go to your garden and you find stuff growing there, you say, thank you, Father. When day and night persist, 
you say, thank you, Father. When summer turns to fall and fall turns to winter and winter turns to summer, you say, thank you, Father, for your persistence in maintaining this world in its present course. It says, until that day, the earth will remain. Listen carefully. The earth is not going to be destroyed by a meteor. The earth is not going to be destroyed by climate change. The earth will not be wiped out through a nuclear winter. The earth will not experience another universal ice age. Until the final day comes that God has fixed, there will be seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night. Why? Because God has committed to humankind that it will be so. Loved ones, we live in an amazing world, guided and directed by an amazing God, filled with moments of time and again of his grace and mercy and kindness. If you know God, rejoice and be thankful every single day for his persistence and his covenant keeping of this orderly world in which we live. And if you don't know God today, turn to him. Look to Christ and be saved and know that your eternity is secured in him. Father, we thank you for your word. It's an amazing word. It helps us, it guides us, it directs us, it instructs us, it calms our fears. May this word be helpful to us this morning, I pray in Christ's name, amen.